Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through 30. You can open your Bibles there or navigate on your muted devices. The topic, your life is compared to a field that is being plowed by you and Jesus as if you were yoked together. The title of our message, Different Yokes for Different Folks. Let's pray. Lord, uh, this is a unique gathering, a special gathering, Lord, that you've put together. You've seen us here, Lord, from before the foundations of the earth, and that should uh, cause us to be thrilled. We're here in all manner of uh, emotions and places in our lives, Lord, some in uh, mountaintop experiences, a lot of us in valleys, Lord. Uh, I I pray that you would meet each of us at our need. Especially today, Lord, because you're going to talk about becoming unburdened as yoke fellows with you. Uh, and Lord, that's something it just, I, I find it to be elusive, Lord. Uh, yet it seems so simple when we read about it. And so give us your perspective, fill us with your spirit, uh, bring us into that place of experiencing the peace of God that passes all understanding. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. I was looking at the instruction book that came with my Frigidaire oven so I could be sure I had the temperature calibrated just right for Thanksgiving. I discovered that my oven has a Sabbath mode. Does your I'm just gonna say that every week from now on. Does your, do you know, have you ever looked at your manual, your oven manual? Do you know if your oven has a Sabbath mode? Most of your ovens, I think, do unless they're really, really old. What is it? Well, I'd heard of it before, and I assumed it was something that would keep you from using your oven during the hours of the Sabbath, but just the opposite is true. Listen to this description. This is fascinating to me. While raw food may not be cooked on the Sabbath, food that was already cooked beforehand may be kept warm until mealtime, and food may be cooked fresh, but turning the heat on is prohibited because it is considered kindling a fire, one of the works you may not do on the Sabbath. In the past, the problem could be solved simply by lighting a stove or oven before the Sabbath began and leaving it on. In recent decades, however, appliance manufacturers have instituted a safety feature that automatically shuts off the heat after a number of hours. This renders the appliance useless for those who are trying to observe the Sabbath. When an oven is in Sabbath mode, the standard six or 12 hour automatic shutoff is overridden and the consumer may thereby use the oven without technically kindling a fire. Refrigerators also pose Sabbath problems. Those who try to keep the Sabbath, called Sabbatarians, by the way, I mean, we, Jews are not the only ones who try and keep the Sabbath. You're aware of that. And any person who's keeping the Sabbath is a Sabbatarian. Now, they're not supposed to open the refrigerator door from sundown Friday through sundown Saturday. If they do, the door switch completes an electrical current turning on the light and completing an electrical current is considered kindling a fire. Modern technology has again come to the rescue. In Sabbath mode, the consumer does not have to worry about lights, digits, icons, tones, alarms, solenoids, or fans being activated or deactivated when opening or closing the refrigerator door. A built-in delay prevents these from turning on immediately after the door is opened. And so you can open up your refrigerator door and nothing happens until a little bit later when you're not opening it, and so you're not technically kindling the fire 
inside your refrigerator. Appliance manufacturers had to work hard so Sabbatarians could rest, if that makes sense. Now, the truth is, anyone trying to rest on the Sabbath, according to these kinds of religious rules, will find it exhaustingly hard work. The work it took to rest on the Sabbath was an unbearable burden for the Jews in the first century as well. The scribes and the Pharisees kept heaping more and more rules and regulations upon the people, offering them no help bearing them. To those Sabbath-weary, worn-out people, Jesus said in verse 28, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus takes us out of the realm of exhausting religious practices and into the reality of an endearing relationship with himself. These are among the most compassionate, the most powerful, the most merciful and wonderful words to ever come from the lips of Jesus Christ. And so let's listen to him carefully as I organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, Jesus shows you how rest works. And number two, Jesus saves you to rest from works. First of all, in verses 25 and 26, Jesus is gonna show you how rest works. And by that I mean, before Jesus defines rest for you, he demonstrates rest for you. In the preceding verses, Matthew began to tell us that Jesus' offer to establish the kingdom of heaven on the earth as its king is going to be rejected by the vast majority of the Jews. Although announced by John the Baptist in the spirit and power of Elijah, and although Jesus displayed all the miraculous credentials of the coming one, of the Messiah, no kingdom would come, and it still hasn't come. It is still future to us. How do you react when everything you've been doing for God seems to result in total failure? Jesus rested in the ultimate will and plan of God. He's, verse 25, we read, at that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes, or it could be translated little children. Jesus wasn't thankful that the wise and the prudent were rejecting the gospel. He was thankful that God was not to be thwarted in his promise to eventually establish the kingdom. If some rejected Jesus, others would eventually receive him. Now, before we further analyze what Jesus said, listen to how he said it. He said, I thank you to his father. The words translated thank you mean I acknowledge you. A language scholar said this. He said, the person praying acknowledges who God is, the propriety of his ways, and the excellence of his character. At that point, acknowledgement is scarcely distinguishable from praise. Propriety means God always acts according to his excellent character, which is pure and perfect. Jesus acknowledged his father. Even though seemingly things were not going according to plan, Jesus was confident that God had not changed. He would keep his word. He would fulfill his promises. It's a pretty big deal to acknowledge God. Instead of blaming God when things seem to be going wrong, I can acknowledge he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that he remains pure and perfect, and he is at work, and he will redeem all things for the good. We saw last week, we talked a lot about how the fact that we can't be responsible for the results of our ministry, only our faithfulness, 
but we can be sure that God will continue to work and work all things out for the good. And so even though Jesus' ministry was completely failing from an earthly point of view in the sense that the Jews were going to reject what they had been hoping for for centuries, he could still acknowledge his father was pure and perfect and was working out his plan through his providence. And there was indeed a big change in plan for Jesus' ministry. This is the moment in Jesus' ministry where we see that the gospel will extend beyond Israel, beyond the Jews, to the Gentiles, to the whole world. In a moment, he will invite all men to come to himself. Jesus was first sent to the Israelites to establish the kingdom, but as they rejected him, the gospel call went beyond Israel. Now, the Jews to whom Jesus had been sent, and especially their leaders, considered themselves wise and prudent. We would say they were self-righteous and therefore self-sufficient. They were only interested in the kingdom of heaven if they did not need to repent to enter it. They thought they had earned it. They thought they had deserved it by their own righteousness. In contrast to the self-righteous, self-sufficient Jews who refused to repent, there were others who would eagerly welcome the gospel. They saw their need. Jesus said of God the Father that he had hidden these things from the wise and prudent. Some people read hidden as if they never had any hope of receiving the Lord because God was somehow hiding the truth from them. There's no good reason to read the words that way. Jesus and his 12 disciples had gone around preaching the gospel, giving everyone who heard them the opportunity to repent and believe. No one would read about their evangelistic campaign and not think it was a sincere offer of salvation to whosoever would believe. It was only hidden in the sense that they refused to respond to the grace of God. Thus, they could not see what God was showing them. There's no teaching here or to my understanding anywhere in the Bible that some people cannot believe and be saved, only that they will not believe and be saved. Salvation is all of grace. By his grace, God frees the will of a man to be able to respond to his offer of salvation. Then the question becomes, why do some respond positively while others do not? The mystery of human responsiveness to the gospel is known only to God and to the persons making their choices. One commentator did make this observation from the text here and other texts. He says, it is not for us to attempt to explain why some receive and believe the gospel while others do not. One thing stands out in scripture as a great practical truth to be remembered always. Those from whom the gospel is hidden are generally wise in their own eyes. They're proud, they refuse to humble themselves, even confronted with the grace of God. Now, it's an after-the-fact observation, but the self-righteous who feel self-sufficient are often those who reject salvation by grace. So verse 26 says, even so, Father, for it seemed good in your sight. By sight, I think the Lord was referring to his Father's oversight No matter the obstacles and the apparent change of course, God was exercising his oversight, ruling the universe by his providence, working all things together for the good. I mean, I think we understand that because the Jews rejected the kingdom, it it can't possibly nullify all the promises of God to establish the kingdom on earth. All it did was change the timetable. And now we are the church age looking forward to God finishing this program with Israel and through the great tribulation, he will establish the kingdom. Jesus will return in his second coming and all Israel will be saved. 
Now, this is pretty deep stuff, really. John the Baptist had announced that the kingdom of heaven was at hand and that Jesus was the coming one in fulfillment of the prophecies. The Lord went about offering to establish the kingdom on the earth and proving his right to its throne by performing so many signs, wonders, and miracles that if they had all been written down in books, the world could not contain the books. The Jewish leaders and ultimately the vast majority of Jews rejected all of that. Jesus reacted to that by resting in his father, knowing that because of God's pure and perfect character, he would redeem it, working all things out to the ultimate good. Before Jesus describes spiritual rest in verses 27 through 30, he is demonstrating it for us. He himself is resting at a time of great stress and pressure in his ministry. It is at least in part the acknowledgement that God's plans and purposes will not and cannot ultimately fail because God's character is perfect and pure and he always acts accordingly. And furthermore, it is not a reluctant or sorrowful acknowledgement. It is a joyful one, a thankful one. Now that's the part I struggle with and that keeps me from truly resting in God most of the time. I am pretty good at being reluctant or sorrowful when things aren't going my way. It's easy. Uh, it's very, very difficult uh, personally to break through the way Jesus did and just say, hey, you know, I acknowledge you. But this is the teaching that he brings to us this morning. My rest is there for you if you will acknowledge the goodness and the grace of God, the pure and perfect nature of God, and that all things are working together for the good. Now, as we go into the Rest of the verses, verses 27 through 30, Jesus saves you to rest from works. The Jews were spiritually weary. They struggled under an enormous load of religious legalities that were laid upon them by their spiritual leaders. The rules for the Sabbath alone were an incredible burden that they were called upon to bear. Today there are 39 categories of activities that cannot occur from sundown Friday through sundown Saturday. So if you're a Sabbatarian, there are 39 categories of behaviors. Not 39 behaviors. That would be hard enough. There are 39 categories, each with many different behaviors under them that you must avoid in order to properly keep and therefore rest on the Sabbath. Uh, Let's stick with this one of kindling a fire. Let me give you one more example of this. So that you do not have to push a button which would complete the electrical circuit violating the Sabbath rule of kindling a fire, there are in many buildings around the world and especially in Israel, Sabbath elevators. Sabbath elevator is an elevator that automatically stops and opens at every floor without you having to push the button. And so you, you, you push no button on the Sabbath, the elevator opens, you get in, and you stop on every floor, thereby keeping the Sabbath because you don't push the button, which would complete the electrical circuit, which some rabbi somewhere along the line decided was kindling a fire. And then you go into your Sabbath mode refrigerator and grab a Coke Maybe, I don't know. And then while your Sabbath mode oven has been on since just before sundown Friday, cooking your pre-cooked meal. And there you sit in your barca lounger, keeping the Sabbath. Now, I don't want to be totally insensitive to folks who think they should keep the Sabbath. Notice I said totally. But I've got to say this. Do we really think 
that keeping the refrigerator door closed from sundown Friday until sundown Saturday is what God had in mind when he established the Sabbath in Genesis. Or not turning on the oven or using an elevator that stops on every floor. Isn't it just a little deceptive and disingenuous to then figure out a way in which we can open the refrigerator door or cook or get up to the top floor? And so the rabbi comes along, he says, here's how you keep the Sabbath. You cannot cook because it kindles a fire. What if we turn it on early and leave it on the whole time? I've kept the Sabbath and I've cooked at the same time. I've kept the Sabbath and I've ridden the elevator at the same time. This is insane nonsense. And it's a tremendous burden. My favorite Sabbath-keeping activity here in Hanford, we had a family on Gene's paper route that wouldn't pay him on the Sabbath because they were transacting business. And so we had to, we had to always avoid going there from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday to collect because they would come to the door and just say, we can't, you know, we can't do it. I wanted to count their steps from their chair to the door because there's only so many steps you can walk on the Sabbath too, but that's a whole nother thing. And so those rules and regulations, they are works that are laid upon you by which you think you are obeying God. Jesus establishes that he saves you and then you rest from works in an empowered relationship with him. Verse 27, all things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Now, this is strong language saying that Jesus is the only way to know God. There's no other religion, there are no other relationships by which a person can be saved. God the Father and Jesus are one, and the only way to know God is to have him revealed to you by Jesus Christ. I like the way one commentator expanded this verse. Here's what he said. All things have been committed to him. He carries the keys. To him we must go for admission into heaven. He is the door. Through him we must enter. He is the shepherd. We must hear his voice and follow him if we do not wish to perish in the wilderness. He is the physician. We must apply to him if we want to be healed of the plague of sin. He's the bread of life. We must feed on him if we want to have our souls satisfied. He is the light. We must follow him if we do not want to wander in darkness. He is the fountain. We must wash in his blood if we want to be cleansed and made ready for the great day of account. Who does the Son will to reveal God the Father to? Well, while it is clear from this verse that no person on his or her own has the ability to know God unless God acts to reveal himself, it does not follow that he only reveals himself to a chosen few. We learn elsewhere in the Bible he wills to reveal himself to whosoever will believe in him, John 3.16. We're told Jesus is the savior of all men, especially those who believe, 1 Timothy 4.10. These next three verses tell us the same thing. Jesus extends his invitation to all men everywhere. And so the Bible says that only if Jesus reveals the Father to you can you get saved. And then the Lord says, and I reveal him to everyone. Jesus at one point said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. He was talking about the cross. He said, by the cross, there is grace sufficient to bring the knowledge of God to every human heart. And then you get into the mystery of the response. Why is it some get saved and others don't? 
I don't know, no one knows, but it is a sincere offer to all who hear the gospel. The next three verses, we see this invitation. Verse 28, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Do you feel burdened? Do you feel overwhelmed? Do you feel defeated? Do you ever say things like, I just can't take it anymore? When you do, this is what Jesus would say to you. If you had a counseling appointment with Jesus and you went in and started to unload these things, Jesus would say these words to you. Now, one thing we need to understand from the beginning is that he does not promise to remove your burdens. He promises to carry them with you. Spiritual rest eludes you if your idea of rest is that your trials or troubles or tragedies must be removed or that that's what Jesus is going to do. Theologians take uh, notice of a progression here as Jesus says, come and then take and then learn. Come would be a general universal invitation to all men everywhere. The human race is burdened by sin and its guilt and is laboring to merit acceptance with God. You see some of this in the Sabbath regulations. They keep thinking they can do these things and please God. But we must quit our own works and rest in his work on the cross on our behalf. And this is the invitation to just come. Come as you are to Jesus Christ. Take tells us that salvation is a gift, but like any gift, it must be received in order to become effective. No one can come to God unless God reveals himself to them, but by grace, that's exactly what Jesus does for all men. This is that mysterious moment when the grace-freed will must decide to receive or uh, reject Christ. Learn encourages us that once we have responded to the grace of God and receive the Lord, then he's going to lead us moment by moment and day by day until the work he has begun is completed. In describing himself as gentle and lowly in heart, the Lord is reminding us that his leading is never a religious leading, it is always a relational leading. Even when there are precepts and principles that must be followed because we find them in the word of God, it is because of your relationship with the Lord, not because you are under a strict set of rules. And then notice the double use of the word rest also while we're still looking at these. Jesus says, I will give you rest. That is peace with God that comes from salvation. When you come to the Lord Jesus Christ and repent of your sin and acknowledge him as your savior, he gives you immediate spiritual rest from works. You, no long, you can't earn your salvation, but it's salvation by grace alone. Then he says you're gonna find rest. That is the peace of God that is available in any and every situation and circumstance as you acknowledge God. This is what we must learn as we walk with the Lord, that having the peace of God, uh, having peace with God, we can know the peace of God in any and every circumstance of our life. And so that we can make application of that, Jesus provided this illustration in verse 30. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. A yoke was a wooden frame placed on the backs of oxen to make them pull in tandem. The simple yoke consisted of a bar with two loops, either of rope or wood that went around the animal's necks. More elaborate yokes had shafts connected to the middle with which the animals pulled plows or other farm implements. 
The yoke was designed to fit smoothly so long as the pair was heading in the same direction and moving at the same speed. If one of them slowed or stopped or started in another direction, the yoke would begin to chafe and pinch. One paraphrase of this verse reads, become my yoke fellow, learn how to pull the load by working beside me and watching how I do it. The heavy labor will seem lighter when you allow me to help. And so if you're saved, if you're a Christian, Jesus is your yoke fellow. He did all the heavy lifting at the cross and now he wants to guide you as you plow forward through the field that is your particular unique life. You all have your own field that is unique and particular to you. We used to say God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life or the Bible says that there are good works that he has before ordained that you should walk in them. But his illustration here is you're yoked with him in a particular field that is your life. He guides you obviously by his word. That's what we believe. The Bible reveals God's heart and gives you the freedom to behave within loving boundaries. Every parent understands this. You want your children to learn the freedom to behave within reasonable, loving boundaries that are what? Good for them. Yoked with Jesus, you're going to find at certain points the application of his word is more lenient than you might be used to. At other points, Jesus' application of God's word can be more stringent than you might be used to. Let me give you a couple of examples. As we've already said and seen, the Jews labored under ridiculous Sabbath rules. Jesus went about doing good on the Sabbath, always challenging those rules. He healed folks and did other things like that, demonstrating that you keep the Sabbath in a spiritual sense, not in a strict legal sense. So the Jews were very, very strict about the Sabbath in terms of how far you could walk and kindling a fire and all these kinds of things. And Jesus and his disciples, they walked through fields and ate corn, you know, and, and just healed people and just were going around showing mercy and doing good on the Sabbath, prompting the Jews to think that Jesus was a liberal, that he was too lenient, that he didn't understand the Sabbath. However, in a weightier matter, the Jews had decided that you could get a divorce for any reason whatsoever. My pastor in San Bernardino used to say, if your wife burned the toast, you could divorce her. And I'm thinking, they had toasters then? That's how I think. But anyway, Pharisees said, yeah, just write a certificate of divorce and you're divorced. It doesn't matter the reason. Well, Jesus came along and he said, oh, yeah, yeah, it does. And he brought us back to a more strict understanding of marriage, divorce, and remarriage from the book of Genesis, giving indication that there needed to be certain biblical grounds for divorce before you could get divorced and biblically be remarried. And so Jesus, he's not, people are always kind of surprised when we talk about resting and this kind of thing because they think it obliterates all rules, all regulations, or what we would call precepts and principles. No, it doesn't. The yoke represents your entire walk with the Lord, guided by and empowered by his word and the Holy Spirit. But whether it seems lenient or stringent, it's not a burden because we're enjoying fellowship with him and we're keeping these precepts and principles because of our love for him. One commentator put it this way. He said, the yoke Jesus asks us to take upon ourselves is the whole Christian life and its hope. 
Once we've assumed that yoke, God's commandments are never a burden that weighs us down and destroys us. Instead, they are the expressions of God's will in which we delight for we look for ways to express our thanks to God for the blessings of his grace. The word easy that Jesus uses here has a range of meanings. I like all four of them. It means good, helpful, kind, and profitable. And so as a Christian, I understand that obeying God is good and profitable and that God's commands are helpful and kind. So if a command seems stringent, like Jesus' command on marriage, divorce and remarriage, it really isn't. It's good and profitable to me and to the church and to society, and it is helpful and kind of him to so guide me. This word easy can also mean well-fitting. Jesus has a particular yoke for you that is well-fitted to your walk and to your unique field. It says his burden is light. If it sometimes seems crushing, it's not. The Apostle Paul, for example, endured many trials, much suffering as he plowed the particular field of his life. Paul had a very, from our perspective, he had a really difficult field. Right from the get-go when he was saved, the Lord said to him, I'm going to show you how many things you have to suffer for my name's sake. You're in a very difficult field, Paul. This guy was shipwrecked multiple times back before there was a Coast Guard or life jackets or anything like that. He was imprisoned many times. He was robbed and left for naked and dead. He was stoned to death. He was beaten. Uh, I mean, he had a, a pretty hard life. On top of that, he had some kind of a physical infirmity that he called the messenger of Satan. I mean, you're, you're in pretty bad shape. If somebody say, how do you feel? I'm being beat up by the messenger of Satan. Paul said of all that, this is my light affliction and it's only for a moment. It's working for me a far more exceeding weight of glory. And so Paul had this perspective. He says, I'm just gonna rest in God. This is a light affliction because I anticipate glory. And so if something is heavy, then I guess I'm carrying the load all by myself or perhaps I'm not looking to the hope of glory that is set before me at the end of my field when my plowing is finished. And at some point in your life, you're gonna realize Sometimes it's the hope of glory that gets you through what you're going through because the suffering is just not going to stop this side of heaven. Now notice that the rest you find is for your souls. Always we must be reminded that God is working on us looking forward to the day we will appear before him. Ultimate rest comes in that day when I see I've been made perfect having been conformed into the likeness of Jesus. Now it's not insignificant to remember that Jesus was a carpenter by trade. That means he would have fashioned many yokes in his career as a carpenter. And I think they were the best yokes around, don't you? I mean, the Bible doesn't say that, but I'm pretty sure that if Jesus built a yoke, it was a good one. Probably everybody else is just doing, you know, uh, mundane yokes, standard yokes. Go to buy a yoke, yeah, here's a yoke. Small, medium, and large. Jesus was maybe the tailor of yokes going out with measurements. Let me see your oxen. What do you mean? I have to see your particular oxen. I have to make a perfect yoke for your oxen. No two oxen are alike. They're just dumb beasts. I'm gonna see your oxen or I'm not making you a yoke. And so they must have been the greatest yoke. People came from all over. I'm making all of this up, you realize. People probably came from all over to buy the yokes of Jesus. I mean, it makes sense. I mean, you know, the Lord, he's not putting out any, you know, standard yoke. And so he understands this uh, illustration probably better than anybody. And he says, he says, Gene, I've got a yoke that I made just for me and you. 
in a field that has been set aside just for me and you. Now, you know what you and I do? Maybe not you and I, but what, what Christians do. Christians, they got the yoke on, they're in a field, they plow a little ways, whether it's their marriage or their job or some other area of their life, and they say, I want a different field. I don't like the field I'm in. There's another field right over there that seems really cool. Jesus, I'm going to have to take this yoke off for a minute because if I turn, if I stop, if I slow down, this yoke is gonna chafe because you're trying to lead me to an expected end. You have good in store for me, but I, I have to get out of this yoke right now. I'm gonna oil myself or grease myself, whatever I have to do to get out of this yoke. And then I'd like you to meet me in the field next door a little bit later, maybe six weeks from now or six years from now, and then I'll crawl back into this yoke that you've made for me, and then we'll pick up again. Because I want to plow a different field than the one that you've called me to plow. Now, when you put it that way, it sounds pretty lame, doesn't it? But this is what we do when we make these decisions to disobey God. When we read in his word, this is what I'm supposed to do and I'm supposed to receive it as good and profitable because after all, God is my father and he wouldn't ask me to do anything that isn't good and profitable for me and that isn't beneficial in the long run. But I just don't believe that. I'm gonna do what I think is good for me and throw off the yoke for a while. And so we wanna be very careful about this. If you don't feel that way, when you feel that it's less than helpful, less than kind, when it's not profitable, then you're either trying to plow in a way that will leave a crooked furrow or you might be wanting another field altogether. You might be slowing down or simply stopping plowing for one reason or another. But it's a, it's a good illustration for us to remember. And so maybe, maybe today you're chafing under some burden. Um, I always use marriage as an example, right? Because marriage, everybody can really relate to that. Most of us have some kind of, you know, couple that we know that was or is in trouble right now, and, and so I'm not trying to pick on anybody. But maybe right now you might be in a situation where you think, I, I do want out of my marriage. I can't stand my marriage. And there's absolutely no biblical grounds for divorce. I'm telling you that God says you should stay and plow in that field and that it is good and profitable for you and for your children and for your church and for your society. And if you don't believe that, then you have a problem with God. You're trying to take off a yoke and uh, eliminate that for a while while you get into some other field and then you wanna come back. And you know what? God is forgiving, but Paul said, should grace abound, that, should sin abound so that grace might abound. That's what we always default to. We think, well, you know, the Lord's gonna forgive me. What a terrible attitude. If you sent your children out and you said, hey, don't do this one thing, and they said, well, you know, Dad, I'm gonna do that anyway because I know, here, my dad, you're gonna forgive me. I don't care how much I hurt you. I'm still gonna do it. Well, what, what do you think about that? Sometimes we need to just get really real about what we're doing to God and how it affects his heart. And, and so hang in there. Jesus said, I've, I've got rest for you, but you need to acknowledge God that he's pure and perfect and will always act accordingly to bring you forth your good and his glory. It's not that he's gonna take burdens away, he's gonna bear them for you and with you in a perfect way, working all things together for good. And so own your field. Get up, plow straight at the pace that the Lord has set and let him do the heavy lifting. 